This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Moretti. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Great to have you back, Melissa. This is your second show in the studio, in Kokomo Studios. And uh, you might be a fixture moving forward. I don't know. (laughs) Everybody, there's a lot of rave reviews out there. Yeah, I think Adam's going to be out of a job. This is, Adam was very upset with how well you performed last week. (laughs) (laughs) But he is, he's coming back to the office at the end of this week, so... Be good to have him back, but uh, before we talk any further about that, let's introduce the guest. Today we have on Peter Waldkirch. Now, you're Instagram famous. Peter Waldkirch is (laughs) Twitter famous. He live tweets city council meetings. He's a research lawyer. He's what I'd call is one of these guys, and Kit Sauter, I think, falls into this camp. Just super, super bright guys who are very engaged in local politics in this really meaningful way. And having them on the show is so insightful because now that no one gets the newspaper anymore, it's very hard to keep up really with what's going on in the city politically or in any kind of capacity, really. So having these guys who sit through council meetings and do so for free and live tweet it like Peter does, it's an amazing service and it's a, it's a passion project. He does it for fun. I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, but if I did, he would be my number one follower. No, he's he's very good. It's very entertaining. Uh, I literally got all my news about the Broadway plan, which we talk about in detail today, from Peter's Twitter feed. He was just live tweeting like 10 hours worth of meetings. It was incredible. A masochist through and through, that is for sure. Before we cut to our talk with Peter, though, there is a couple of exciting pre-sale projects right now. And here's what I would say about this moment. To me, it feels kind of like 2014, 2015, where suddenly there's some really exciting product. There's not lineups out the door. The time horizon is is fairly attractive. Like we were just at a a Port Moody project yesterday, over 101 beds, wood frame, really attractive price points. I don't think they, they've they released their price points yet, but we know the starting prices. Workhorse one beds, great little rentals in one of the best communities in Vancouver. I don't know. I'm I'm really getting excited about pre-sale again. I don't think I've ever been so excited about a pre-sale project as when I walked into this presentation center. The nice thing about it too, and we may actually have a podcast live from Port Moody. We'll see. It's still in the works here. But It's the same sales team as, and this is maybe just nostalgia for me, that sold Canvas right on 2nd and Main, just east of there, right by the new SkyTrain station back in 2013, 2014, where the writing was on the wall for that project. But everyone who went in and bought, and we had a lot of clients who did, came out like it was was the best, the best investment going. And this project feels that way in, in a lot of ways. Same look, same sales team. 
different developer, but just really great investment unit. So it's a really exciting thing. We'll keep you posted on that. But uh, maybe, Melissa, we should cut to our talk because it's actually Peter graced us with his presence in Kokomo Studios. And we go along like usual because I feel like I could have talked to Peter for days. You guys are going to hang out at the Nerd Bar this weekend. <laughs> We're, we will. It's We're, a date. It's, it's a date. I, I, could only, I could only hope as much. Uh, but maybe we should cut to our talk with Peter Waldkirch, research lawyer, live tweeter, and political observer of all things Vancouver. I, I'm making this up, but uh, it, it, this is a good one. So stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sonehouse offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Peter Waldkirch, lawyer and keen observer of Vancouver city politics and all things I would say Vancouver is how I'm going to put it. Uh, thank you for coming in, Peter. Oh, thanks for having me over. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you in the studio. Maybe for our listeners who want a little bit more detail on on who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, of course. So like you said, my name is Peter Waldkirch. I'm a, a lawyer here in Vancouver. I'm born and raised in Vancouver. I'm from here originally. I grew up in Carisdale. But before law, my background is actually in music. I studied music for a lot of years before switching over to law, first here in Vancouver, and then in Montreal. I was there for three years. And living in Montreal definitely had a big um, impact on my views about like cities and urbanism and all that sort of stuff, housing policy. Uh, so I was there for uh, three or oh, four years, actually, in Montreal, and then three years in Ottawa. After that, I went to law school there, an article there, and came back to Vancouver about 10 years ago, which kind of makes me feel old. But there we are. Um, right. And sort of. Uh, so, yeah, in Vancouver, my background was in commercial litigation. But for the last few years, I'm doing a research law. So I provide opinions and memos and help with appeals and stuff like that for other lawyers here in uh, British Columbia. And that's our job has given me the, um, the flexibility, really, the time and the flexibility to uh, get involved in my community more. And I've done that mostly through housing advocacy. So for the last few years, I've been involved with Abundant Housing Vancouver, which is a pro-housing advocacy organization here right. in Vancouver. I spent a lot of time watching city council, especially in all their housing-related stuff. I live-tweeted out to try and help keep people informed. And uh, yeah, that's what I've been involved in the last few years. I'm also working on right now a master's degree at uh, an LLM at Allard Law at UBC on sort of housing-related stuff. Oh, wow. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So you wear many hats. <laughs> I think anyone listening has to know what instruments do you play? Well, yeah. So my original instrument was the bass trombone, which is a bit of an obscure instrument, but that was a bit uh, not quite obscure enough for me. So I switched from that to the accordion. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right on. And in terms of Montreal, I'm kind of curious to hear what's different and how did that inform? Can you unpack that a little bit, how it in informed yeah. uh, your views of urbanism? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that, I mean, this was a, more than a few years ago when I was in Montreal. I was there in the, I guess, mid to the 2000s, the early 2005, right. 2008, somewhere around there. I feel like, I, and don't, uh, maybe don't quote me here, but they had a really great art scene. Wasn't it like Everybody was heading to Montreal because of affordability at that, that time. I was just going to say it was a huge part of it. Rents were super cheap. You right. could find a place to live there super, uh, super affordably. It was like the arcade fire kind of absolutely. moment, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it was just, it's a, it's a great city. There's a lot going on there. And a big part of it is that, um, you know, there's more sort of medium density spread out throughout the entire city. There's a large part of the city where there's just low-rise apartments kind of everywhere or like these attached houses, you know, attached, um, not houses, but like attached, uh, you know, low-rise sort of buildings that right. sort of spread out everywhere. Um, so there isn't quite the same sort of like ultra-dense downtown like we have here. It's more sort of spread out everywhere, which creates just a really fascinating fabric of the city. You can get around. You don't need a car at all to live, you know, in the in sort of most of Montreal. The transit is great. It's just a really sort of vibrant livable, you know, city. Um, I was lucky enough to live my last year there in the Plateau, which is really just this amazing neighborhood where there's affordability, there's lots of housing, there's shops sort of spread out everywhere. You can just sort of pick up your groceries on your way home. You right. know, it's really just a, a great place to live. It's it's kind of the uh, four floors and corner stores kind of model. Absolutely. Four floors and corner stores. That's right there. They call them these adepreneurs, right? Which are these like little sort of corner stores, these depths, and um, they're really part of your community, right? They're all sort of independently run. I mean, there's chains as well, but, you know, the ones in your neighborhood are probably independently run. You got to get to know the people that work there, that own it, that shop there. It's a place where you just run into your neighbors. And, you know, that's one of the things that gets to me, you know, um, in Vancouver housing politics, you'll often hear these people from these low-density neighborhoods talking about the character of their neighborhood. The, the neighborhoods I've lived in, I grew up in Carousel, but the neighborhoods I've lived in that have had the most character, where I felt the most connected to my neighbors, were pretty dense neighborhoods. Neighborhoods like the Plateau, neighborhoods like the West End in Vancouver, right? right? That's where I've felt connected and really part of a vibrant community. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Also, I used to live in the West End. And uh, I'm still connected with a lot of people that it's one of the only times in my Vancouver life where I've actually met, like, I have a totally new group of friends as an adult that came out of, you know, the West End. That's right. I find it so frustrating listening to these uh, city council meetings when, you know, somebody in a $3 million, $5 million detached house says that there's no community in a high rise or something like that. I mean, I lived in the West End in a 22 floor building. And I knew pretty much everybody on my floor. Right. I knew people on other floors, just running into them in the lobby and at the local stores, the park nearby. You recognize somebody. Oh, hey, I, you know, I see you. I know you. Right. So yeah, type yeah, conversations. Yeah. Right. And I think it's a, a really um, great way to live. Do you and I'm just thinking out loud here. One of the kind of reoccurring things you see in Vancouver uh, is a lament that it's very hard to make friends or feel part of the community here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Especially thinking about Montreal how housing housing types have led to the feelings of isolation in Vancouver? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I do have thoughts about okay, that. You great. might be uh, surprised <laughs> to hear 
you know, I think one of the, I think it, there's a lot of truth to that. First of all, I do think it is tough to make friends in Vancouver. I do think it is tough to connect with people in this town, especially for people who are moving here. But, you know, also for people who grew up here. You know, I, like I said, was born here. I grew up here. I went to high school here. I went to uh, undergraduate of university here. I don't think a single one of my close friends from high school or from university still lives in Vancouver. Every single one of them has been pushed out of the city to the suburbs or further away to Kelowna, right. to Ontario, to places where there's housing and there's opportunity. And so, you know, if you want to talk about social isolation, let me tell you what tears people apart. It's when your friends all live an hour away by car. You know, when you have to drive for 45 minutes or an hour just to go hang out with somebody's backyard or meet up at a local pub or something like that. You know, this sort of, I think that this, our housing shortage, which I think is a huge problem in the city, drives a lot of the social isolation and the social difficulties we experience in the city just because people can't live close to each other. You can't just be like, oh, hey, I'll, you know, stop by. I'll drop by your place for a beer. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Right? Yeah, I'm in you the neighborhood. You have to yeah. be like, oh, well, you know, the sky train stops at midnight or, you know what I mean? Or I have to drive 45 minutes to go out to your place. Or I think that really tears people apart. Peter, in your mind, what are the biggest issues that Vancouver is currently facing? Well, I think Vancouver is facing a lot of sort of big issues. And that's one of the reasons why I get so frustrated by sort of the, the political paralysis and cowardice. I think we see a lot. So for me, obviously, the housing crisis is a major issue. And one of the reasons why I've gotten involved in it um, in sort of the small way that I, I can is um, because I think it's connected to a lot of other major problems that we are facing. Housing is, I think, a, a key human right. Everybody, I think, deserves to have stable, dignified housing. Um, and when that's denied, it leads to all sorts of other sort of problems. So another major problem we're facing is the climate crisis. That's something I'm, you know, really worries me a lot. And so sprawl, low density housing, car dependent lifestyles, that's intimately tied with our housing crisis, right? Like land use policy is housing policy, is transportation policy, is climate policy. Land use sort of ties them all together. And another, I think, you know, if I had to pick sort of three of the big problems, the last one um, would be the drug poisoning crisis. You know, um, our neighbors are dying every day from a poisoned drug supply. And again, I think that's tied, um, not entirely, but, you know, part of the problem there also is insecure uh, housing. I think, uh, again, like I said, everybody needs a stable, dignified home. And when they have that, you know, better things can sort of start happening in their life. I'm curious because we've had, and I think you'd probably be, you, I don't know if you know personally, but Kit Sauter was on the show who I think probably your views are aligned in some ways. But what's kind of interesting about your kind of vantage point, Peter, is at least in my mind is you mentioned cowardice and kind of paralysis at the city level. And we talked with Kit a little bit about like, okay, even, you know, you see even Burnaby and Surrey are acting in kind of more aggressive ways to to deal with the issues facing Vancouver. I'm wondering, watching these city council meetings, do you think how much of it is the politics and kind of the deep history of politics in Vancouver and how much of it is this specific city council? <laughs> Can you parse <laughs> the difference in terms of like where we're at? Because I do feel like under you know, Vision Vancouver, I think the general consensus is we were able to get things done. A lot of people didn't necessarily agree with everything or there was pushback, but it felt like the city was moving in a, in a direction. Whereas right now it's like, I just feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a tough question to answer because absolutely right now our current council is dysfunctional. 
you know, regardless of your your views on sort of the merits on the politics and, you know, things like that, I think everybody should be concerned about what's going on in City Hall. You know, everybody should have an interest in having professional, competent leadership that is able to like move business along in a reasonable way and not have meetings devolve into complete chaos. And that's what we got right now. So I should start off by sort of singling out a couple of councillors, I think, for praise, actually, because I want to sort of carve them out a little bit. First of all is the mayor. Again, agree or disagree with him on a lot of things. Uh, he at least tries to get business moving along and tries to keep things sort of under control and actually has some ideas for things to do. I disagree with some of those things that uh, he voted against, for example, the climate emergency parking program, which I was a supporter of. So I was very disappointed by that. But on housing, he's pretty good. And he wants he actually wants to get things done. Councillor Boyle from one city. She has been, I think, by far the best sort of uh, a counselor. She also actually has some ideas, wants to get some stuff done tries to keep move business moving along. On the other end, um, <laughs> we've got some counselors who I think, um, I suspect, you know, if you are somebody who wants to maintain the status quo, if you are somebody who has an interest in obstructing change, then procedural chaos and bickering and chaotic meetings is great. You love that. I think Councillor Hardwick is one of them. She's uh, was elected with the NPA. Now she has her own party, a team. Right. She is, um, you know, a constant obstructionist trying to sort of basically filibuster meetings, regardless of what you think about sort of the merits of things. If you just want counsel that can like operate, she's a big problem. Uh, Councillor Melissa DiGenova with the NPA. You know, I, it's a bit of a tough one for me because she is a pretty consistent yes vote on individual housing projects, which I admire and I support. But uh, that being said, she uh, constantly derails meetings. She talks over other people. She seems to lack basic comprehension about how these meetings are supposed to operate. <laughs> it's really like meetings under her watch have devolved into just complete chaos where they haven't ended just basic procedural stuff where the meeting doesn't end properly and which leads to more chaos down the road. Right. So that's been a big problem. So um, the Greens I'm also very critical of, um, especially uh Councillors Carr and Pete Fry, they also, you know, I can't imagine all the work and effort of campaigning to get into a position of power and then using that power for basically twiddling your thumbs and not wanting to do anything, which is right. how I view basically the, the Vancouver Greens. So, yeah, I think there's a huge problem with our current council. They are sort of chaotic. They are not able to move business along. Business just moves along really slowly, aren't able to get through their agenda most of the time, which causes, right. you know, that means other things get bumped, right? So they just, they just don't get much done, um, which is a huge problem. You know, we had Francis Bula on when the council got voted in. And I and one thing that I remember Francis saying was, you know, it was kind of like a clean house, but there was no institutional memory almost. It was destroyed in that she said, I remember her saying like, it wasn't just like, how does this all work? It was like, where's the bathroom? Like, we don't actually know, we, this is, we just, we're all new. Do you think that's kind of a contributing factor or is it more, because I, it sounds like there, you have a more cynical take than, yeah, than that. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I think that but it was a, there was definitely a fair comment, especially at the beginning of their term. But I think there's a couple of contributing things. First of all is that I don't think most people realize how weak the Vancouver mayor really is, right? This isn't like uh, some city where the mayor is in charge of the bureaucracy and can tell people to do this or do that right. or work on this or work on that, right? The it's mayor. Not like Mayor Daly in Chicago yeah, or something. Yeah, not at all, right? It's a, it's a weak mayor, and that's yeah. not an insult to the mayor. That's just sort of what this style is called, right. right? So to get anything done, the mayor is just one out of – there's 10 councillors and the mayor, so there's 11 votes, and the mayor is just one vote. 
So the mayor can't really do anything without council coming along for the you know supporting them. So this that's, that's definitely part of the issue is that there just isn't a clear majority to do anything with this council. It's hard to sort of get the votes and stuff like that. That being said, and there, like I said, there was only, um, I think, a couple, two, I think, of returning councillors from previous councils. So definitely just, you know, there's going to be a learning period. That being said, we're almost four years into this now. We're near the end of their term. Everybody knows where Melissa the bathroom Genova, is. Melissa who I mentioned, she was one of the returning counselors. If anybody should have a grasp of the, what a point of information is or what a point of order is or how to do an amendment to an amendment. If you watch counsel, you know these are these words are like <laughs> echoing in your brain right now, right? Um, <laughs> you know, like if anybody should know what this is, she does. And she's the one that is most consistently derailing business. So I, I don't think it's just a question of, um, you know, learning the ropes or a bit of a learning period. Period. I think there is, um, you know, a question about what these people actually want to do, if it's anything at all, other than spin the wheels and cause delay and sort of chaos. I think it's a real question with some of them. Maybe can we talk about the Broadway plan? Yeah. Uh, so this is, I feel like there's like the broad city council kind of discussion. And then, of course, the Broadway plan is, I don't know your position on it. Somebody said to me they thought it was one of the most important decisions in Vancouver history, which maybe is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch, but it's it's an important one. Mm-hmm. And I know I was watching you live tweet <laughs> the, the Broadway <laughs> plan, and it sounded like we don't start on time. Like there were so many things that were like just agonizing in that tweet. Can we can we talk maybe first off the Broadway plan, broad strokes what it is, mm-hmm. and then delve into how council has dealt with that because. We were expecting, or at least some people were hoping for kind of an outcome by now. Yeah. And we we don't have one. In typical Vancouver Council fashion, we do not have one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So just in terms of what the uh, Broadway plan is generally, basically, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we are in a, in a climate crisis. Part of the solution to that um, needs to be better public transit, right? And the Broadway corridor is, um, uh, it's the second largest job center in the province. Right. And it's right next to downtown, which is the first largest job center in the province. It's the busiest bus corridor in Canada or the United States. I think in Mexico City, there's a bus route that's more, that's a corridor that's busier. But other than that, it's like in North America, Broadway is kind of the biggest bus route that there is, right? And we forget that, yes, UBC is out on the sort of edge of the peninsula, but it's basically a small city on its own, right? Like with all the jobs and UBC, it moves a lot of people. So the um, provincial government, the federal government, very wisely funded uh, a subway down Broadway. Unwisely, I think they only funded half of one. It's going to end at Arbutus, which is totally ridiculous. But anyways, one day, one day it'll go all the way to UBC. But for now, it's just going to Arbutus. And so the it actually started under the previous city council. They were like, hey, OK, so this is coming. Provincial government, they're investing billions of dollars in this massive public investment. They're, I think they were kind of told to by the senior levels of government. We need to plan for this to like make use of this public investment, right? They also wanted to kind of limit speculation, so they kind of put a freeze on development on Broadway while this plan was being worked on, basically. But anyways, so basically this is from the area from um, Clark Drive to Vine Street from 1st to 16th. I have problems with that sort of area. It was designed sort of to exclude most of the low-density areas, which is where I think most of the housing in the city should be going. But anyways, that was defined as the plan area. 
And they're basically saying, hey, how are we going to respond to this massive investment? How are we going to respond to this um, this new SkyTrain that's coming in here? So it's a it's a sort of a plan to sort of, you know, look at where new housing should go, how they should protect the existing tenants, because especially in Fairview and South Granville, there's a lot of, um, you know, back when Vancouver actually did build new housing back in the 60s, uh, there's a lot of housing from that era that is now an important part of today's affordable rental housing stock. Right. So, you know, the planner's, this started almost four years ago, almost exactly. It started in June 2018. They started looking at, you know, how are we going to plan this? How are we going to build for this? How are we going to accommodate? You know, we know we have a housing shortage in the city. We know this public transit is coming in. We know for our housing goals, for our climate goals, we want to encourage people to live close to their jobs, close to transit. How are we going to do this? So that's right. basically what the Broadway plan is. And so since then, they've had almost four years of consultation where they've done, you know, five surveys, 41 workshops, 14 open houses, thousands of people, thousands of people have participated in this consultation process. It was supposed to uh, be over about two years ago, but because of COVID and, you know, not enough consultation, not enough consultation, (laughs) never enough consultation. It's finally just sort of came to council um, about a month ago. Um, after being delayed for about two years. So how these sort of things normally work is staff will give a presentation and then speakers could sign up to speak to it, to council. And um, there was four or five days, uh, four days, I think, of speakers. So over 200 people registered. And so each one is given five minutes, up to five minutes to talk to what the broad, you know, their views on the Broadway plan. Each councillor is given up to five minutes to respond to each of those speakers. Certain councillors... Hardwick, uh, mainly, uh, I think, kind of abused to sort of filibuster the process and really drag it out for a long time. So it took, again, about four days to get through all the speakers. I, you know, I want to emphasize four days. You might say, OK, well, that's not a lot. Um, it's a lot, you know, four <laughs> days to get through. And this is often happens for controversial individual buildings, maybe three or four days. Right. You know, the, the rental building that got approved recently above the Granville and Broadway Skytrain station, that took two or three days of public hearing time. Right. And so, like, my background's in a lawyer. I'm a lawyer uh, and I'm litigation. I often think about this in comparison to sort of court time, right? Like a day of court time is about four hours of actual time in court, four and a half hours maybe of actual time in front of a judge, right? right? Each one of those days is a tremendous investment. First of all, you have to, you know, just pay the judge. You have to pay the the clerk. You have to pay the, 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 the custodial staff to keep the lights on, to keep the place running, right? Like it's a huge public investment every hour of this time. You need to pay the lawyers and just everybody involved. It's a, it's a huge investment in time. A single hour of this hearing time is just a tremendous public investment. You got the mayor, you got 10 counselors, you have the city manager, who is the highest, that's the person who actually sort of runs the bureaucracy right. of the city, right? They're sort of the highest paid person in the city. You have the senior planning staff. You have junior planning staff. Again, you have the just custodial staff to keep the place running, right? It is just a massive investment, a public investment for every sort of one of these days. You know, in these days were about six hours, I think, of sort of time of like, you know, actual public hearing time. So it's really, um, I think, hard to overstate what a just what a waste of resources these things are especially for these individual projects that come along for the broadway plan you can say okay it's a big important plan it's going to change a huge part of the city but um i think we should really have a lot of thought about how we're consulting people and whether or not this is a, a meaningful way to get consultation from people because they're basically just signing up competing camps of opponents and supporters to right. sort of see who can do it and the reality is usually the opponents to these things are 
I mean, it's you can't watch these things and not notice the obvious demographic sort of um, implications of this. We and there's been research to show that people who are involved in like neighborhood associations and stuff like that, right? They are older, they are whiter, they are more retired, they are more homeowning than Vancouver as a whole. They do not represent come anywhere close to representing Vancouver's diversity, and uh, they for decades sort of dominated these sorts of processes, which I think is again a huge concern about how we do this. Right. I'm curious to hear. So let's call it four or five days of competing forces having their say in five minute increments. Do you think that impacted, actually impacted the process in any meaningful way? It's hard to say with these things sort of generally. Participating are often also these individual rezoning things, right? For it's an individual rental building often, um, usually who, you know, that's up for, you know, a bunch of people opposing it, trying to get some people to support it too. Does it change the views? I think it does. I think it gives the good counselors cover for making the right decision. And I think it gives the bad counselors heat for making the wrong decision. So I do think it matters. Um, but sorry, I should just to complete your actually your previous question a little bit. I should have mentioned, of course, the, the last day of the Broadway plan hearing. So after these four days of, uh, just to wrap that up, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Broad, so after these like four days of speakers uh, going late at night and so forth, they finally had a day set aside where they were going to vote on it, right? This is sort of <laughs> supposed to be the big day. They vote on it. But councillors showed up with over 40 amendments to the Broadway plan. So again, this is a, a staff plan uh, that staff have been working on for four years. Councillors have had opportunities to provide direction to staff, but uh, they kind of don't until the very last minute when they show up with all these amendments. And some of them are good, some of them are bad. But, you know, point is, uh, they had to work through all these one by one. And right. if, again, if you've ever watched Vancouver Council, you know this process is just so painful. <laughs> it's really just, I can't <laughs> emphasize enough how painful it can be to watch this council, especially. And, and even so, even with all of these amendments lined up, my understanding is that council expected to be able to finish in one full day of business, you know, right. to, to get through it. But they didn't. They failed to complete this item in big part because um, Melissa DeGenova and Councillor Hardwick were seemed intent on really sabotaging it, as far as I'm concerned. Just their uh, sort of, especially Melissa DeGenova, her sort of unprofessionalism and um, obstructionism was really um, quite frustrating as somebody who wants to see just competent city management. Right. It was very frustrating. Was Hardwick, was it Hardwick that wanted to punt till after the election? You know, it's like, uh, it reminds me of when Obama couldn't... Uh, Put in the Supreme Court justice, like just a ridiculous yeah. at this point, a ridiculous kind of move. I mean, this is definitely a, a theme of Councillor Hardwick's time on council is she denies that we have a housing crisis. She denies that we have a housing shortage. She basically uses every opportunity she can to deny that we need more housing at all. Which is fine if you got uh, you know a nice house on Kitts Point and all your buddies are these, you know, home-owning, house-owning, neighborhood association people, maybe the city is fine for you. Maybe you don't want to see a change, right? right? And that part of me can sort of sympathize with that a little bit, but I don't think that's responsible leadership. So she, at every opportunity, not just with this, but with almost everything else, uh, tries to delay it, tries to obstruct it, tries to punt it. And yes, absolutely, she wanted to try and delay this till after the election, uh, it's just like a constant theme of hers to deny the need for more housing, to deny the need for any action on housing or anything. Like, can you give an example of of maybe the like the good and bad amendments that that were put in place? Yeah, sure. So the mayor had a good amendment. The mayor proposed to uh, a strengthening of the tenant protections that are in the uh, Broadway plan. So as a bit of background, 
one of the core issues I view it in terms of ha- Vancouver housing policy is that we need a lot more housing, we especially need a lot more rental housing. But the only place that's basically legal to build an apartment is on top of an old apartment, right? Apartments are banned on over 80% of Vancouver's residential land, which is, I think, pretty shocking for a city that's in a housing crisis. And so the only, if you want to build a new apartment, the only place to do it really is to find an old one, yeah. tear it down, and build a new one. Displace right? renters. Which and, displaces yeah. renters and causes real sort of hardship, right? It's a, it's a terrible thing. And so Vancouver, to one of the ways it's tried to sort of respond to this is through the Tenant Relocation Program, Tenant Relocation and Protection Program, uh, TRPP, I think it's called. Anyways, that provides certain... Um, you know, it tries to soften the blow at least a little bit. It provides, depending on the length of your tenancy, it provides some moving costs, subsistence, and finding, new, you know, some things like that. The Broadway plan proposed to, brought it forward by staff, proposed some quite substantially strengthened tenant protections. So it would really be the strongest in, in Canada for sure and in America too. Some very strong tenant protections. And the mayor proposed an amendment to strengthen them even further. So the original proposal was that a displaced tenant would have a right to return when the new building is built, they have a right to return to a unit in a home in the new building at 20% below citywide average rents, so sort of a, at a discount. The mayor's proposal is to say, or at uh, the same rent they were paying before, whichever is less. In some cases, the 20% will be less, but for really long-term tenants, the original rent might be less. So that's when, so that, that passed, that's, that uh, proposal was adopted by staff. So that basically strengthens the tenant protections in the, uh, in the Broadway plan. That's, that's one I, uh, I supported for sure. Mm-hmm. To give an example of one I, I, uh, I didn't support, it has to be Michael, a proposal from Michael Weeb by, uh, of the Green Party. It's a bit of a tough one, but um, he basically wanted to set like a minimum, a certain percentage, a certain requirement for new parks. In, as part of the Broadway plan. The Broadway plan includes, as prepared by staff, very substantial investment in new parks and new greenways and things like that. But he wanted to sort of increase it quite substantially, which is great in theory. But the problem is it would have the only way to accomplish this would have been through massive land acquisition. Staff estimated about a billion dollars in extra and additional costs. Right. Michael Weeb had no plan for, for funding this. It just was really a billion dollars of extra costs with no not even the, an inkling of an idea of how to pay for it. You know, you can't govern like that, I think, right? Staff are very clear if that amendment had passed, it would have basically killed the entire Broadway plan. It would have had to go back to staff, back to the drawing board. Instead of staff, council had directed that council to prioritize rental housing because we need a lot more rental housing. But condos pay a lot more fees to the city because it's much more profitable, right? right? So staff are saying, well, hey, if you want this billion dollars of parks, we'd have to go back and basically redraw the entire Broadway plan, get rid of all this rental and just turn it into condo land instead, right? Yeah. And so this is, I think, a larger, if I could sort of just talk about this, goes to a larger sort of problem I have with a lot of the way our political and planning thinking goes in Vancouver, which is who should pay for growth, right? Right Right now, we look to fees from new housing, uh, CACs, community money contributions, DCLs. Um, these, these fees are paid by developers of new housing to the city to pay for new parks, pay for all sorts of new stuff. And in return, current house owners get low property taxes, right? I know some people wouldn't like to hear that, but when you look at the value of Vancouver property as a percentage, our property taxes are, are very low. right? And so we sort of make up for that by getting all these fees out of new housing. But uh, to me, that poses really fundamental equity questions. It's saying young people, immigrants, newcomers, they're the ones who should pay for the parks that are enjoyed by everybody, right? And in by just 
piling on fee after fee after fee, we make new housing less viable and housing shortages hurt everybody. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. So we have a Vancouver commercial real estate podcast as well. And we were talking about the Broadway plan last week, where we had a couple of commercial agents who are just, you know, work intimately with home builders. And what they're, I mean, we're in a rising interest rate environment, mm-hmm. inflation, but with the CACs and all the other acronyms of, of cost, they were saying, you know, at least for the foreseeable future, like none of this pencils out. So, yeah. you know, it's like the big plan's going to get passed, but nobody's going to be able to build the housing. And it yeah. speaks to, I, I think, exactly right. It's like the onus is on the developer to provide all sorts of community contributions that in other worlds are paid for by property taxes. Absolutely. I think a more equitable approach would be, to, you know, uh, if Michael Weeb wants more parks, I think that's great. I want more parks. Yes, you know so what I, mean? I, right? I live in the Broadway plan Melissa, area. do you want more parks? I would love another park. <laughs> right, absolutely. I'm a, me and my wife, we, uh, we own our place, right? And um, I, I think our property taxes should probably be a bit higher, quite frankly. Right. You know what I mean, right? right? Like I would, I think it'd be fair for more parks, for more money for affordable housing. I think that um, it's only fair for the, you know, the amount of people, you know, anyways. So, but uh, I think Michael Weeb was, when it came time to discuss taxes, when it came time to discuss the city's capital plan, he was silent then. So just to throw on a billion dollars or poison pill during the amendment process of a four at the end of a four year consultation process, to me, that's irresponsible governance. So, you know, the funding for the plan from the federal and provincial government is contingent on us passing something. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we, we've got to come up with some sort of, you know, agreements here. What do you think happens if they don't pass something or how does how is this going to go down 
you know, if. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think in terms of what's likely to happen, I think the um, I think the plan is likely to pass in some form or another. I right. think this council realizes, you know, we're in this housing crisis. It's been almost four years. They've accomplished basically nothing. They're all elected to like work on the housing crisis. And they've really done almost nothing. They've just dithered and planned. So I think they need know they need to do something. I think the real question is whether it gets sort of gutted through the amendment process. And I think that is a real concern. And yeah, so, you know, the plan was launched in response to this massive provincial and federal investment in the subway. And the provincial government, uh, my understanding is basically told the city, you guys need to build more housing in this area to justify this, or not to justify, but like to respond to it, right? And so what happens if the provincial, if the, if the, sorry, the city council does gut it? I think it's a really interesting question. So let's start off with the federal government. The federal government doesn't have too much direct control. The federal government, when it comes to this, they basically have the power of the purse. They can spend money, right? So they can say, hey, we're only going to give you money if you promise to build more housing, right? But one of the problems with this sort of way of thinking is I think there is plenty of communities, there's plenty of people out there that would happily turn down investment if it meant they didn't have to build more housing. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. Like we saw this in uh, in West Vancouver. There's people protesting against the B-Line. You know what I mean? Getting a bus. They were on the streets protesting against improved transit in their community, right? Uh, you hear it with the, there's so much opposition to the current subway extension and certainly to the UBC extension from people who live there who don't want to see their neighborhoods change. They like West Point Gray being this exclusive little enclave. So that's the federal government's main power is, is to spend money. But the problem with these carrots is that some people will absolutely walk away from carrots if they don't get it, uh, if they means they don't have to change or build more housing. I think the more interesting question is what the provincial government would do, because the provincial government does have real levers. In our sort of system, municipalities are, uh, we say, creatures of the province. They are purely statutory. They, the Van, like Vancouver exists and the powers that city council has exists because provincial government has a law called the uh, the Vancouver Charter that sets out what its powers and responsibilities are, what it can, what it can do. It's And it can be changed just through regular provincial legislation. So David Ebby, the attorney general and minister of housing, he has been making some signs recently. He's been talking about about potentially starting to intervene because I think he's getting pretty unhappy with how obstructionist not just Vancouver, but other municipalities around the province have been towards allowing new housing. I mean, again, going back to what I said earlier, apartments are banned across 80% of Vancouver's residential land. Flat out, just banned. There's no way to build them. There's no policy to support them. They're just not allowed. Again, for a city that's in a housing crisis, that to me is just completely unacceptable. Um, And so um, he has suggested that he is looking at sort of options to reform this sort of uh, system. And this is, he wouldn't be the first to sort of think about this. This is, um, there's sort of a wave of similar things going on in other parts of the world. Uh, California is really a leader in this. Uh, California is undergoing a housing crisis. You know, San Francisco, right, is the Bay Area. Their housing crisis is even worse than ours. Which, again, it's just sort of it's not a surprise for decades now. They've been adding a lot of great high paying new jobs and they haven't been building housing to go along with it. So what happens? Well, it's pretty obvious what happens. The existing housing gets bid up through the roof. Right. So they, they're in the midst of this housing crisis and their government there has gone pretty fed up with the same problem we're dealing with here, which is municipalities that just won't allow new housing and will obstruct it at every chance they get. So the, the state government there is starting to um, intervene in municipal housing restrictions on new housing. Oregon did something similar. 
New Zealand did something uh, as well. They instituted a national sort of zoning reform sort of uh, a thing. So this is something that other jurisdictions are just are starting to realize. This, um, you know, what I've been talking about, this ban on apartments, it's sometimes called exclusionary zoning. And a lot of jurisdictions around that use similar systems are starting to realize it's a bad system. It's a terrible right, system. It's right. one, you know, this is, it comes down to what sort of I do with my live tweeting of city council and stuff like that, right? We are in a housing crisis. And yet, you know, forget about the Broadway plan for a second. If you want to build a rental apartment in, in anywhere in the city, you almost certainly need to, let alone nonprofit or social housing, you almost certainly need to go through a lengthy and expensive and uncertain rezoning process. This adds uncertainty, time, expense. And we have to approve these buildings on a case-by-case basis. Like how, it just, it, it flabbergasts me that we are approving housing on a building-by-building basis. We have to assemble our mayor, our counselors, again, all the senior staff to approve individual buildings. And you watch these things and counselors are bickering over micromanaging, you know, tree placement and this or that. And like, look, trees are important, but like, I think our staff can deal with that. I don't think our most senior leadership should be it's insane. doing this. Right? And, and the level of uncertainty that that brings to everything is just like, I remember we talked a lot about a, a project in Chinatown that got, this was, I guess, four or five years ago now, but you know, the amount of money before that, that project got killed, yeah. <laughs> like the amount of money that the, the builder put into that and the years and the resources, it's just like, you look at stuff like that. And that was maybe a, a pretty egregious case, but, Who's got the stomach for that? Oh, and it's especially brutal when you look at um, nonprofit and social housing, right? They need to go through this process too. It's not like they're exempt from this or yeah. something like that, right? This adds literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to nonprofit and social housing projects, which everybody says we need, and yet nobody wants to actually like make it legal to build them as of right, right? It, it's it's to me a maddening system. And you talk to the nonprofit housing providers, they talk about how the uncertainty, the time, the finance risk that it exposes them to, especially right now, where you mentioned earlier that we were in this window of opportunity. And I think you're exactly right. You know, for a number of years leading up to this, um, we had very low interest rates, sort of the stars were in alignment for some housing to actually action, build, right? Yeah. Construction costs have been just skyrocketing. Interest rates are skyrocketing. A lot of rental and nonprofit housing projects are, are in doubt right now. Yeah. The viability is really at risk. And so I find it extremely frustrating with going back to this particular council. Um, obviously, like I said, there's been these systemic sort of issues, but going back to this particular council, they had a window of opportunity to act on our housing crisis, where they could have got, they could have made a difference. They could have opened the doors to a lot of, you know, the provincial government, the federal governments were there with a lot of funding. Interest rates were low. They could have opened the doors to a whole bunch of new rental and nonprofit housing. What did they do? They go, oh, we're going to do the Broadway plan four years later. Oh, we're going to do the Vancouver plan four years later. They're happy to twiddle their thumbs while the city's in a real crisis and act like there's no urgency to the housing crisis. And that's something I, I personally strongly disagree with. I think there is urgency to the housing crisis. I think there is urgency to the climate crisis. I think we need action, not just constant surveys and dithering and consultation. So is this, this makes me think, you know, you often hear democracy's messy, but in some kind of respects here, this makes me think like, man, I kind of wish we lived in a dictatorship. Uh, no, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that. I, I, but I mean, honestly, this, this, this system doesn't seem to be working. Like the weak mayor system yeah. here. Like I do think in all seriousness, like, you know, for the corruption of, you know, New York back in the power broker days where they were putting, you know, freeways through communities and everything else, it's like, that was horrible. And I guess we can look back and think that that's not a great thing or 
the things, say, Mayor Daley does in Chicago, but at least they could, or did in Chicago, but at least they could do stuff. They got stuff done, right or wrong. Yeah, I think the I think it is worth thinking, though, about what democracy looks like in this sort of context. Right. Um, I mentioned earlier that in these consultations, they are still very disproportionately white, wealthy, retired homeowners. Right. Very disproportionately. And for decades, they were basically that was it. Those are the only people who participated. It's only relatively recently that more young people, more renters have gotten involved uh, and showed up to support more housing. And so is that democratic? I don't think so. I don't think it's democratic to say, hey, you elected, you know, our, our civic politics are has caused problems. Voter turnout is quite low. Um, you know, unfortunately, local journalism is in a, in a tough spot. We've got some great local journalists. Absolutely. But the overall local journalism, you know, it's taken a lot of hits over the last sure. several years. Right. So, you know, it's not a it's kind of low information. Some of these elections, it's not great. Uh, but even so, at least, you know, we're getting 30 to 40 percent sort of turnout. You know, at least it is a meaningful sort of you know, take democratic exercise, right? To say to those people who are elected to that through that process, oh no, you can't actually make any decisions until you consult with this self-selecting group of of retirees what they think. Oh, so you can't you can't actually make any decisions. You got to consult with you know this neighborhood association that's right. like this closed little clique of homeowners. That to me, that's what's undemocratic. You know, if we want more participation, it's not to say, oh, we're going to like going back to these hearings, right? These hearings were most of them started at 3 p.m. on a weekday when it went till 10 p.m. at night. So I'm very sort of lucky and privileged that my work and my home responsibilities are flexible enough that I can kind of right. watch this sort of stuff. I can't do that. Yeah, most working people can't. People with child care responsibilities can't. All sorts of people can't participate in this process. Just say, hey elected people, you can't actually make any decisions. You only, the people who show up at this process, they get to call the shots. Yeah. That's not democratic. Like, come on, right? Yeah. Like that, to me, that is, um, you know, so, you know, we could talk about the weak mayor system or this or that, right? But I think to me, this, we could go a long ways just by electing people who are actually willing to make decisions and not pass the buck to endless sort of consultations uh, who people are actually willing to make a decision. And, you know, right now, most of our politicians aren't willing to do that. Maybe switching gears here a little bit, Peter, the Cullen report just mm-hmm. came out, you know, money laundering, which at least if you're on Twitter, which I know you're, you are, uh, the debates over how much proceeds of fentanyl have been propping up Vancouver real estate, you know, it's been a raging debate, or I don't even know if it's a serious debate, but a back and forth bickering insane asylum type environment <laughs> for years. The Cullen Report, can you, can you maybe just, for our listeners, remind everybody what it was addressing and 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 the findings and how that relates to Vancouver real estate? Yeah, of course. So the um, the Cullen Report was basically the you know, end report of an inquiry, the Cullen Inquiry, that's been going on for a while into money laundering in, uh, in British Columbia. Uh, it was launched by the current government, because um, there was a lot of signs that there was a real problem, especially with our casinos and, you know, some things like that to do with uh, money laundering in, in British Columbia. And uh, so the report just came out. It's very long. I haven't read the whole thing, but right. I've gone through the sort of the housing relevant parts. And I think that my main takeaway is that Cullen inquiry is clear that money laundering is a serious problem in British sure. Columbia, especially, in, you know, the recent government has taken some positive steps on it, but um, it's also a federal government issue. And that's something I definitely agree with, you know, white collar crime in general, tax evasion, money laundering, it's, it's a real problem in Canada. I think we, it's something we need to really think about. But that being said, it's not 
a part of the housing crisis, at least not a meaningful part of the housing crisis, right? The Cullen Inquiry report was pretty clear that there's no evidence that this is a substantial part of the housing crisis. The BC government um, a year or so ago appointed an expert task force to look into the role of money laundering in real estate. They made some pretty aggressive assumptions, but they wanted to come up with some sort of a figure. And even with their sort of model, they came up with like a three to four percent price increase as a result of, of money laundering. The Cullen uh, report looked at that and basically said, you know, I admire that they tried to put a number to it, but I don't really find myself convinced by this. Even taking that, though, like four percent is, you know, it's not, it's not, not why we have a, a housing yeah. crisis. You right. know what I mean? Right. So the Cullen report was perfectly clear. Money laundering is not a meaningful part of the housing crisis. Our housing prices are driven by the fundamentals, supply, demand, interest rates, you know, the real yeah. sort of. Just, you know, it's not a big conspiracy the theory, just the yeah. real nuts and bolts of how housing works, right? And so I think that's important. I don't, I wish that the people who drove this, this sort of narrative, I wish they would take some responsibility. The people on Twitter, but they have some friends in uh, local media who... Are- I, I actually think the NDP, in some respects, thinking back to this, like David Eby, yeah. you know, we had, he was on the show before they were elected. And I feel like he's really kind of... And admirably, I think, kind of moved the yeah. moved the way he's thinking about housing. But but this to me was, you know, and I, what you said is exactly correct, right? Like nobody wants to turn a blind eye to money laundering, white collar crime, whatever. But it does seem like just like all the other narratives that uh, divert everyone's attention away from the real nuts and bolts of it. It seems like this was used as a as a tool for. Certain Absolutely. interest groups in, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. You know, if you, um, I, again, I agree that um, some of the pre-election before this government got elected, some of their talk there was a bit uh, disturbing. To their credit, uh, I think he has really pulled a 180, has really sort of um, changed how he's talking about things a lot, which right. I think is a lot to his credit. But no, absolutely. There's, um, you know, this is one thing the Cullen Report also mentioned, I think is important, just to sort of tie into this, was that this narrative has tied into a lot of anti-Asian hate, sure. a lot of xenophobia in Vancouver. You know, it's really created this us versus them narrative that is just not based in reality. Right. Whereas, you know, if you are somebody who doesn't really want Vancouver to change the way it looks, if you want to keep apartments banned across most of the city, if you want to keep, you know, this, these houses, this low-density sort of suburban-like feel, you know, in the center of this urban core – then, you know, it's very convenient to be able to say, oh, it's the foreigners. Oh, it's, you know, these people. Oh, it's Chinese money. Oh, it's the fence. You know what I mean, right? It's very easy to find these scapegoats because there's a way for you to sort of, you know, posture your moral outrage while actually defending the status quo. And I think those people who push that narrative, it's one thing to be concerned about. Because obviously it's, it's you know, it's worth being concerned about money laundering, obviously, right? But, um, you know, a lot of these people really try to shout down anybody who is like, well, maybe we should look at, maybe there's a housing shortage. You know what I mean? Like all these people really try to shout it down. There's some really just sort of, you know, uh, pretty far out there people on Twitter who, you know, accuse, uh, you know, people like me of, you know, having blood on my hands because sure. I'm, you know, in, you know what it just all this crazy sort of stuff right which is one thing for these people but again there are some you know mainstream media so i don't you know sound like i'm complaining about the mainstream media but you know there's people in like the global mail one journalist in particular who i'm thinking about <laughs> who i will not name who uh, i think really they've coddles, been on our show a long time yeah, ago actually really coddles <laughs> these sorts of uh these sorts of uh people these sort of conspiracy theorists and i wish they 
would engage. I don't expect an apology from any of these people. I don't, you know, I don't need one or anything like that. But like, I would hope they would at least engage in a little bit of self-reflection in their role in creating a really hostile environment in Vancouver for, um, you know, in terms of anti-Asian uh, sort of xenophobia. So we've got an election coming up in the fall. What are your predictions on sort of how this plays out and, you know, getting rid of this seemingly dysfunctional council we've got on and and who is mayor ultimately? Yeah, in the oh end here, it's, right? it's sort of the, the tough question because, um, you know, one of the issues, again, is there isn't like a lot of polling. Right. So it's kind of you kind of just sort of going on vibes. Right. So that's kind of, you know, that's all I got. really. Uh, but going off vibes, um, you know, I think the mayor is likely to win um, again in sort of these sorts of municipal elections, there's just a huge incumbency advantage. So uh, I think the mayor is likely to win. And I think that when, you know, I have some issues with the mayor, but overall I'm pretty supportive of the mayor. So, uh, you know, I'm okay with that. But like I said, he's ultimately just one out of 11 votes. So to me, the real question is what happens with the rest of council? Is there going to be a a pro-housing majority on council that can actually get anything done? That is a really tough question. You know, uh, one city is, um, I think, the strongest party in terms of you are somebody who believes that we need more housing. I think they are, you know, a strong party. Councilor Christine Boyle, I think, has been consistently sort of the strongest housing councilor on council. But there's a bunch of other parties, right? You've got the NPA, whose board got taken over by a bunch of like alt-right extremists and like, you know, all of their councillors sort of fled the party because it was so broken and dysfunctional. You've got the former, like, you know, Ken Sim, who has his new party. He was the NPA guy, um, mayoral, mayoral candidate. election. Yeah, okay, right? <laughs> who, like, you know, like, uh, I've met Ken, uh, Ken before, just sort of socially, and, uh, you know, nice guy, sure. But, uh, you know, the reality is in the last election, his only housing sort of idea was more basement suites, which is just not a serious proposal. You know what I mean? Like maybe 40 years ago, that would have been something to say, like in 2020, 2020s, it's just, you know, it's not even on the same galaxy of like seriousness of thinking that we need to address the housing crisis. Um, We've got team, which is Hardwick's party, which is just extremely anti-housing. They want to freeze the city in amber and sort of, you know, kick everyone out who doesn't uh, already have a house. You know, I mean, that's, you know, but like they are extremely, you know, they got the green party who, and I'm very, they are also not, strong on housing at all. They uh, kind of do a lot of posturing, but uh, I, they don't fall through. They vote against a lot of rental housing. They vote against a lot of transit-oriented development, which to me is mag. For example, at um, Broadway and Birch, which is the old Denny's on Broadway, they're putting up a, a rental building there, uh, 20% below market. It's right in between two future SkyTrain stations, Pete Fry and Adrian Carr, two green councillors voted against it. To me, that's just... To be a, an alleged green who votes against such highly transit-oriented rental housing when we need it so much is just disqualifying from, um, you know, from if you're a housing supporter, you know, disqualifying from your support, I think. So what's going to happen? I'm not, I'm a bit worried. Um, I hope we can get uh, between the mayor is going to be running some candidates and he hasn't announced them yet, but uh, they will likely be sort of generally pro supporting more rental housing in the city. Uh, he... Um, and more home ownership options that aren't just uh, houses. He had launched a program earlier, got council to vote for, uh, it's called Making Home, which is basically would be allowing multiplexes on or just now sure. attached home lots. So, right. you know, the mayor, uh, his counts, his candidates will probably, probably be pretty strong on housing. One city is pretty strong on housing. You know, it's kind of 
hopeful that between them and maybe some of, you know, other counselors who are like um, Sir Kirby Young, at least Dominado, who are running with Ken Sims Party, but have a relatively strong housing record, you know, hopefully they can put together some sort of working uh, housing functional majority. I'm worried. I think a lot of people are sleeping on um, the risk of uh, Hardwick's party doing well, unfortunately, um, even though, you know, they're ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just so out of touch. Um, I think they might do well with a lot of, um, you know, wealthy house owners. Who well, are- and it's basically, and goes back to the generational thing, right? The people who show up to vote, unfortunately, are generally older, presumably whiter, I don't know, but I would guess, and retired. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I, I think it's a, you know, you know, a risk that uh, her party could do better than a lot of people online kind sure. of uh, give her, you know, think that she will. But um, so that's why I encourage, you know, that's, and that's why I do what I do. So like you mentioned earlier that I spend a lot of time watching counsel and live tweeting it. The reason why I got into this is basically because, um, you know, I think it's important. I think what happens in our local politics is really important and it's really kind of obscure, right? So we'll watch these meetings and these weird times a day. Well, and I can say, speaking from, you know, we talk to people all that, you know, we've said on the show before, you know, Adam and I and, and uh, now Melissa talk to people since 2016, week in, week out about this. And we've talked before the last election and it still was very complicated to vote. Like I, and I feel like we've followed it fairly closely. So your Twitter account alone is like a very useful resource, (laughs) sometimes depressing resource, but for people who like, I, I'm not going to sit through, you know, I'm not going to sit. And, and I used to have a, I used to have a subscription to Vancouver Sun and I no longer do. So, you know, it's people like yourselves where I'm getting a lot of that information. We've run long, uh, but this has been great. Peter, uh, we do have a segment called the Five Wire, Five Lighthearted Questions about uh, yourself in Vancouver. Uh, do you have time to stick around for that? Yeah, sure, of course. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive, tried, and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the Lower Mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay, question number one. All right, what's one book you would recommend our listeners read? Okay, I'll take a moment to sort of shamelessly plug a book that I co-wrote that's just out. Uh, This one's only of interest to the lawyers out there with uh, Mr. Justice uh, David Carrar. I co-wrote the Annotated British Columbia Limitation Act. So get that hot (laughs) book for your (laughs) law firm library right now. But no, seriously, um, I was actually thinking about this question. I was like, oh man, should I pick like, you know, something related to our discussion? But no, I got to be true to myself. I'm going to say Dune by Frank Herbert. I read that book when I was in high school. I've reread it sort of many times since. Most recently, I reread uh, the entire series after the the new movie came right. out. Right. So, um, Dune. Dune. <laughs> you are on death row. What's your last meal? Uh, another tough one. I, I like to eat. I would go with uh, with schnitzel. Uh, my dad's German. Mm-hmm. My name. My mom was Czech. She's passed away now, but she was Czech and she made an excellent schnitzel. So, um, I, w- I would say schnitzel some like German style potato salad, nice cold pilsner. Oh, do you make a good schnitzel? Not so much. I, I haven't quite <laughs> nailed it myself. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So what have you been binge watching lately or what's your favorite movie? Uh, so in terms of what me and my wife, we've uh, been watching recently A Better Call Saul. 
which uh, I right. highly recommend. It's really great. We're kind of in that. They're doing one of these like mid-season. So it's the final season. They're doing one of these mid-season breaks right now. Yeah. So they've played like half the season and have to wait another few weeks, I think, for the second half of the last season to come out. So we're eagerly anticipating that to come out right now. Fantastic. Yeah, Bob Odenkirk. Is, yeah. Uh, and if you just want Bob Odenkirk, he had an action movie came out last year. Oh, before. right. Nobody, which is really... I haven't seen that, but I saw the trailer and he was like, crazy shred oh, right I, it is, uh, it's really um uh, if you like action movies it's uh i think really really good really really great he put a lot of work into that like he sells it he is like a legit action star in that movie and i know it sounds crazy to it, say that but, seems uh, insane yeah, to like me yeah him and christopher lloyd uh who is not a young uh, young guy anymore but like seriously it's uh if you like action movies really don't sleep on that one right on uh Okay, and and coming out of your music background, I'm kind of curious to hear your favorite music or band. So, uh, yeah, there's another tough one uh, in terms of like, um, I I mean, like I said, I studied classical music, so I'm I'm a Wagnerite. I'm a bit a bit embarrassed. Oh, yes, I really like Wagner. I'm often listening to the Ring Cycle or bits and pieces of it or something like that. So, that's that. But uh, to add some local um, uh, flavor, I'm um, not about to say the favorite band, but a band I've been listening to a fair amount recently is a Chilliwack band, the darkest of the hillside thickets. And they do like, um, kind of like, um, like, uh, I don't know if you know, HP Lovecraft. They do kind of like thematic music about like Tulu and sort of monsters and stuff like that. Oh. They're great. Very, very musically talented. Really funny. Last question for you, Peter, something you have purchased in the last little while for under $1,500 that has changed your life or had a, at least had a positive impact. Yeah, that's, a, that's another tough one. I, I'm going to go with this, uh, like a framed print I got recently. So I don't know if you remember um, the Stormcrow Alehouse, which was the Stormcrow right. on uh, Broadway and Fur. It's the Alehouse or Tavern. I get the names backwards. But the Stormcrow on Broadway and Fur, um, which unfortunately closed down during the pandemic. Uh, and that was sort of like a, like a nerd bar. They had like lots of you know, stuff. Anyways, when they closed down, they had a sale of all their memorabilia and stuff like that. So they had this, this print that I was able to snap up. It's like a portrait of Data from Star Trek The Next Generation holding his cat. It's called, it's called Ode to Spot because his cat's name is Spot because yeah. Data doesn't ever get it quite right. right? <laughs> so um, anyways, I managed to snap that up and it's uh, hanging up in my place now. Oh, right on. Uh, just in terms of the idea of nerd bars, best nerd bar in the city, I walk by a bar. I'm not even sure if it's still there on Commercial Drive that strikes me as a nerd bar. Um, it might have been the other. Stormcrow had two locations. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe that was it. But that is one, there... I think, also got pen, caught COVIDed, I think. Okay. Yeah. Is there any nerd bar currently that is... Uh... There's uh, there's some downtown. I, I'm not familiar with them. Okay. Uh... I've never even heard the term nerd bar, but I, <laughs> there was one. The commercial drive one, I used to walk by and think, man, this is a very specific... Like it's a specific bar. Yeah. One Am that, I the only person who doesn't know what a nerd bar is? <laughs> so I mean, I don't know if it's a real term or not. But so Stormcrow had like a okay. lot of like um, you know, just paraphernalia from okay. science fiction and you know, whatever, just all sorts of stuff. All their drinks are kind of have right. themed names. Right. I feel like you I could had roll a, a dice to get a random shot and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I had a drink in the one on commercial drive once. Yeah, and and most of the references were totally lost on me, but I was like, all right, this is a very specific yeah. This is a nerd bar. You're going to go back <laughs> for sure. All right, Peter, uh, last question for you. How can people find out more mm. about what you're doing? Uh, definitely your Twitter handle, but are there other other things you want to direct people to? Uh, yeah, so um, find me on Twitter. Um, that's, again, my German last name can be a bit tricky, and I didn't pick like a catchy one. So it's just first initial last name. So that's P. Waldkirch, P-W-A-L-D. 
K-I-R-C-H, Peter Walkirch, P. Walkirch. So you can find me on Twitter there. I would also encourage your listeners to um, check out, um, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I do some work with Abundant Housing Vancouver, which is a volunteer pro-housing advocacy organization uh, here in Vancouver. Check them out, sign up for their mailing list. I think something a lot of your listeners might particularly be interested in is uh, AHV organizes walking tours right. from time to time. And so the next one probably is going to be just at the end of the summer. I think sort of very early September is what we're looking at. But that'll be the um, the worst zoning, Vancouver's worst zoning walking tour, which uh, we go around Belmont Avenue, which is this area so close to UBC, close to the beach that's zoned exclusively for like mega, mega mansions. Um, and we talk about why that's the worst zoning in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, it's uh, for real. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun. Um, I would encourage, I think, something your listeners might be interested in. So keep your eyes open for that. Fantastic. Well, thanks for your time, Peter. That was that a great was conversation. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Peter. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Peter Waldkirch, research lawyer, live tweeter, and general super citizen of Vancouver, I would call him. Yeah. <laughs> Great conversation with Peter. It was. It was. <laughs> I feel like at times you you were potentially, you were engaged, but I feel like we left and you were kind of like, man, you guys really like you think about politics. this a lot yeah. absolutely it was a great conversation I, mean, I could i could talk with guys like peter all day long yeah. it's so um it's so engaging and uh and probably for anyone who made it through the conversation is now going oh i get the nerd bar part you've just spent the last five minutes making a reservation on your phone <laughs> at a couple of different nerd bars I, think. I i did get a list from peter uh before before he left but yeah, hopefully that was useful. I think that is a very useful conversation, thinking more about the fall and what happens with the Broadway plan. But before we cut for the day, Melissa, we do have, of course, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. I should say most people who sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, when inevitably they get to speak with somebody from our team, it's usually yourself. Oftentimes it's myself. And, and everyone is uh, is wildly enthusiastic. You're basically the voice of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, <laughs> apart from on the show, uh, the voice and face. So yeah, if you're signing up to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, you can expect to communicate with Melissa. Yeah. You can also sign up there for the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer where you're seeing stats before anyone else, stats that no one else has. Deal of the month, we have... Tons of VIP access to residential presale projects right now. I feel like this market is there. There's a lot of attractive deals, and the deals are getting better uh, in the presale exciting market things right now. Coming up. There's a Absolutely. lot of exciting things in the presale market. We also have commercial presale deals, and of course, tried and true private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you're standing still while the rest of us power walk by you. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips. <laughs> and, you know, like we said last week, <laughs> knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. That's right. <laughs> Listen, last week, I don't... Is this a spoiler to say you actually you read out the pitch, but you've already got it down, so Adam is definitely out of a job. But private client services, we're in a shifting market right now. So if you want to know days on market, sold prices updating in real time, there's basically no better way to keep your finger on the pulse than private client services. And you get that at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. 
If you want to talk about this or anything else, you can try me at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can call me at 778-869-4477 or melissa at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week and have a great week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.